So here we go, beginning in verse 1 of the only chapter of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these, all, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses... He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, swept along by winds, excuse me, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. 
and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Jude, speaking of his brother, gives a warning to these people. Wishing he could just simply write to them about their common salvation, but instead found it necessary to write appealing for them to contend more boldly, more courageously for their own faith. And so, he gives us kind of a litany of different things we ought to take heed of. Last week we saw that this means that as a group of people, we take the Word of God, the, the, what we believe about the Gospel, the nature and character of Christ seriously. So much so that we'll sound a little radical in this day and age. But this week, I think, kind of the, taking on the second third of this chapter, this book, I think we'll find this. That just as Jesus and the apostles predicted, there will always be a threat of false teachers who are revealed by their actions and seek to infiltrate and divide Christ's church. There will always be false teaching. There will always be a temptation toward that which is expedient, that which sounds right. Last week we saw that referred to as sensuality, to trade the grace of God, the good news of God's forgiveness and grace that alone has the power to redeem us and trade it for sensuality, whatever feels right, whatever sounds right. But we don't do that because we remember that you don't get hung on a cross by simply telling people what they want to hear. And so Jesus demonstrates for us that even though our temptation is away from that which is difficult and costly toward that which is worldly and feels right, this temptation will not go away. But neither is it a surprise. So that when deception comes, when confusion comes, when a lack of understanding comes, when we find ourselves bogged down and not quite understanding or grasping or loving or walking in the joy of Christ, Jesus is not looking up for there going, oh my, what has happened? He doesn't call a huddle with the Holy Spirit and God the Father and like, we've we got to fix this, we've got to do something. What's the plan B? Instead, we find out the apostles and Jesus both have predicted this. Look, a time's coming when the teachings that we pass on will seem too difficult, when following Jesus will seem like not the most expedient option, a time will come when it will seem like a better option to abandon Jesus and just do what everyone else is doing. A time is on its way in which following Jesus will be the thing that is the most costly, maybe even to the point where it costs us, like the first church, our own lives and that will seem like a much too expensive investment in light of just doing what gets you by. Jesus and the apostles predicted it, and this threat will always be among us. So then, we as the people who call ourselves Christians, who call ourselves followers of Jesus, are to be the most diligent in holding fast to the centrality of the work and person of Christ in our own lives, in our own families, and in the life of this community of faith. 
We saw last week, he gives us an example of of Exodus and others to show us that just because you're a part of the right community doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to be subject to the judgment of God. And people have come in and tried to pull others away. This is common in other different New Testament texts as well. And he gives us some Old Testament examples, but then he makes a transition where we'll begin in verse 8. Yet in like manner. So in the same way that the Exodus and those who rebelled against God after they were redeemed by God kind of demonstrated his punishment. In the same way that in Genesis 6, the authorities and angels stepped out and as this cryptic, if you, if you want to freak yourself out, read Genesis chapter 6, the, the Nephilim, and then just start Googling what people think that is. But essentially, it's a story in which God's own subjects reject his lordship and authority, step into the world, and then they are a part of judgment, just as in verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah are demonstrations of what happens when you trade God's ways and, and the sacrifice of what we would like for what God would like. They serve it as an example for judgment. In like manner, in the same way that these are examples, he gives us another set of lists, a list of things, beginning in verse 8 all the way to about verse 20 that we'll get to today. In the like manner, yet in like manner, these people also, now he's referring to the people who are teaching something false. The false teachers that have crept in, from verse 3 to 5, the false teachers that have now crept in, in the same way, these people are, and then he gives us a list of some things that seem to mark for them the ways in which their false teaching can be revealed. They rely on their dreams. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. And then they blaspheme the glorious ones. Well, let's begin there. It says that these false teachings begin to emerge, but they're revealed by something amazing. And it's a, a phrase that you'll hear me say, and I, I want to kind of give this to you. And it's what I would call functional theology. That is a functional belief, your functional doctrine. Over here you have what you would say you believe what you would say you have convictions about. But over here is what you functionally believe. Right? So over here we would say things like, and, and this is where controversy teams seems to, to bear this out, this is over here where we would say what we believe and, and agree with what's right, where you and I would all agree that texting while driving is an awful idea. Like no one would make the case, I am such a better driver when I'm emailing people while driving. Right? Is there anyone who would like make the case, like, I'm such a better driver when I'm texting people, right? Like this, over here we would agree, that's not really the best thing to do. Mind you, there's no reason to demonize texting. Uh, it's, it's just as dangerous to be operating your, I don't know, whatever stereo you got going on, or God help us when your dog is in your lap while you're driving. <laughs> what could go wrong, right? Functionally, we would say, these are the things that are dangerous, but over, I mean, excuse me, outwardly we would say this, but functionally we would be over here and be like, you know, I may text occasionally. Oh, whoa, that's important, right? Or maybe you're like, maybe trying to, no, I don't want to wreck and do it, right? So over here we would go, none of us is a better driver while we're texting, but functionally we don't really believe that. We see this in other controversial different topics, right? Global warming. Global warming, that's awesome. Global warming. And what you believe about global warming is often very controversial because what you really believe about global warming will be borne out functionally. Right? So I, I, I kind of I believe global warming is real. 
but I also like my really loud car with no catalytic converter, right? Because it sounds cool. I like monster trucks and race cars. I love them. I love, when, you know, when you roll the gas back or hit the gas and it gets loud and burns a bunch of fossil fuels just like that. One of my favorite things. And so over here, I'm like, yeah, I want, I want, I want my children and children's children to have like a livable climate. Yeah, let's do what we can for that. But over here, functionally, <laughs> monster trucks are cool. See what I mean? Like over here, this is what we believe, but functionally, we bear out what we really really have convictions about. And so this is what this means for this church or the churches that Jude was writing to, most of them having kind of a, a Jewish background. They might have all said they believe one thing, but notice when Jude stands up here and, and, and draws attention to the ways in which their false teaching is made manifest, he doesn't quote anyone and he doesn't mention a specific person standing up and teaching a certain thing. Instead, he gives us a list of examples in which false teaching was revealed by their functional theology what they really believed, what they really believed that was so detrimental and dangerous to the church, what they really believed that was being born out and dividing the church ultimately was revealed by what they were doing. Say what you want, but those who were false, teacher in like, false teachers in like manner of these other examples are revealed in what way in verse 8? By the things that they're doing. It says that they're relying on their dreams. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. And they blaspheme the glorious ones. Let's just walk through this first one. It says that they relied upon their dreams. Now, this is, this is a good conversation for the first church to have. And, and a conversation we as a church ought to regularly have. One of the first heresies that was kind of destroyed as Montanism, you can, you can look this up, was the belief in and continuing prophecy. And there was a group of people who, who got together and believed that the Holy Spirit was giving a new revelation about who God was, so much so that the people who were, who were proponents of this weren't even listed, according to some church historians. And by the second century, they were kicked out and labeled as heretics. They were Montanists. Look, look at Google Montanism, and you will see this, this continuing revelation kind of belief that that god comes in and he gives you the answer the way this plays out for us is like if someone comes along and they're like christians for centuries have been wrong but i've got it I, i've got the solution beware you're probably relying on some false doctrine of continuing prophecy a continuing revelation what you're doing is you're undermining one of the church's first most important doctrines, and that is the sufficiency of the Scripture. It's sufficient. It gives us everything we need for life and practice. It may not teach you how to program your router, but it's sufficient for revealing the character of God to you. So if someone comes along and says, no, I actually know something about the character of God. I actually know something about the work of the Spirit. I know something about Jesus that isn't verified in the Scripture. Well, then we're like, okay, but that, that isn't confirmed, and so therefore you should have a healthy skepticism. These people, the way that they were referring to a new form of revelation was in dreams. They were relying on their dreams. They were evidently trying to teach people based on something they believed that God had revealed to them in a dream. So here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, cannot reveal himself to you in a dream. 
That may happen. Maybe that's, that happens all the time. This is what I pray for. If I put you to sleep in a sermon, my personal prayer is like, God, speak to them in a dream, all right? That's good. Here we go. God does that. The Holy Spirit will do this. But what I am saying is that whatever the Holy Spirit may reveal to you, stir up in you, will never be contradictory to what he's already revealed to generations and centuries of Christians past. And so if I stand up here and I'm like, guys, I had a dream and the Spirit told me to do this thing and it sounds fishy and not like it's biblical, you should pause. You should be like, wow, that's great. and that sounds like a good dream, uh, but that sounds more like a Freudian dream, maybe a Jungian dream. I think you're just afraid of something and, you're, and your own, like, I don't know, maybe your own dispositions and your own, maybe your own fixations are emerging in a dream. I could be wrong, but if it's not consistent with Scripture, there's got to be a better ex- explanation. And these first heretics were apparently revealed by the fact that they were relying on an outside source other than Scripture. So if you have a dream, great awesome but we'll just measure it against the canon which literally means measurement we'll measure it against the canon of scripture and and see what happens the second thing it says that they were doing their false teaching showed up in the way that they relied on dreams but it says that they defiled the flesh this is more explicit this is kind of right on the heels of of talking about the sexual immorality that was judged in sodom and gomorrah so also you come to find this is really fun if you read uh, first and second corinthians there was a lot of pretty shady sexual practices going on in the first church that people had to boldly and courageously confront. People defiling their own flesh. Such that Paul comes along and he says, let me tell you about your flesh. Don't you know? Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know that your body Your body was purchased by the blood of Christ. It's not your own. You treat it with stewardship. You take care of it because it was on loan to you. Your body's a temple. God dwells in it. And when we do things that defile God's holy and perfect standard, then we're doing something in the temple, the holy of holies now, where God dwells himself. They defile the flesh. Here's what this means. We actually think that the gospel has implications for every area of our lives. Every area. In fact, if someone walks up to you and they, in the entirety of a conversation with you, are holding something behind their back, the whole time, if, you, if you're trying to talk to them and they're just kind of holding something behind your back and you're like, what's in your hand? And you're like, nothing. We believe Jesus ruthlessly over and over and over again goes after that thing. We believe that's the first thing he addresses. And nothing is off the table when we see that Jesus is Lord. And so that means that Christians will have convictions even about sexuality. We don't necessarily believe that everything that feels good is good. Instead, we believe that what is good is a gift from God and ought to be used as stewards to demonstrate His faithfulness and love and grace to us. Don't you know? Don't you know that your temple, or that your body is a temple of God? And He's present in that. He's glorified in the temple. And that means that even the most intimate of things is something that is on the table for us as Christians because we believe that God is there. 
And their false teaching showed up not only that they referred to their own kind of subjective authority, like dreams, but also that they were doing things that defiled their own body, their own temple. It says that they rejected authority. You're going to see how they're all loaded in here together. They're kind of lumped in and, they, and they're related to one another. This is, this is probably the most difficult one. This is probably the one that we are, are going to struggle with the most because we hate authority. We hate it. If you were born in the last 100 to 200 years, you hate authority, right? Think about it. One of our, one of our favorite one of our favorite patriots, right? I love this. Patrick Henry. Give me liberty. That is, give me freedom. Don't tell me what to do. Give me liberty or give me death. I'd rather die than you tell me what to do. I would rather die than be under a tyrant. Right? That's who we are. I mean, that, that, I don't know, but that gets me jacked up, right? Like, yeah. Don't tell me what to do. We hate this. This is awful. And yet there's something radical about Christians, isn't there? We don't just call Jesus our Savior. We what? We call him our Lord. We call him our Master. And even, this is interesting, even though we have a very, we have a very intimate understanding of the awful effects of slavery over the last few centuries in our own country, we actually don't mind using the language of slavery when we talk about what, who we are in light of Jesus. We're a servant. We're okay if he tells us what to do. And because we are okay with him telling us what to do, because we want to grow in a, our ability to see Jesus as sovereign Lord over all things, then we're more sensitive and submissive and humble to the authorities that God has put over us. Both the actual authorities, the political authorities that God has placed over us, he's put in there, that, we're not saying that they're God, but we are saying that God in his mercy has allowed a common grace that if someone tries to kill you, the common grace is there ought to be at least a few police officers and lawyers and, and, and governing officials that come and help you. That's a grace. It's not anarchy. It's not crazy. However, when we find ourselves rebelling against worldly authority, it's almost always related to our also having a rebellion in our own hearts against God's authority. So even as I say that, even as I say that, that's a word that feels really weird coming out of my mouth and you listening to. Someone has authority over you? Authority? That hurts. But because we know that Jesus is a good Savior, we're okay with calling him Lord. And if what he wants for us isn't necessarily what we want or what feels good, we're the radical group of people that believe that his way is better. So if you're in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer, I'm really glad you're here because I want you to hear like, the radical nature of what we as Christians really believe. We really believe that Jesus is in charge. This is what this means for us. There's only one person in this church who always, get, always gets what he wants. Always. And his name is Jesus. There's only one person that whenever he says jump, we say how high? And it's Jesus. He gets all the glory, all the glory, he has all the authority. We'll see this next week in this awesome doxology that closes out. He's all dominion, all authority, he gets it all. And so if I say something to you on my own authority, don't listen. And the authority as a pastor and an elder over you, on my own merit, do you know how much authority I have? Zero. 
But when I'm holding this book and speaking Jesus' words into your life, now we're appealing to an authority. And we're radically different than the world. That when we come to something, we don't immediately demonize what we disagree with. We come to something in the Bible and we assume we're wrong. We're radical. We, we open something in the Bible and we're like, this, I, don't, I don't know what to do with this. This is weird. I don't know how to apply this. And instead of going, forget this, it's 2016, I'm out of this, we find a way to humble ourselves to shape our own lives in accordance with this. And this gives a powerful sense of authority to God's words. I say that because even in my own life, if you, if you spend close, uh, any time close with me, I have a massive problem with authority. Massive problem with authority. You could tell me to do something good, and just because you told me to do it, I'm, like, I'm not doing that. So what if it's great, right? Have you ever heard that somebody hands you like, this is the greatest book on earth, read this, and I'm like, I was going to, and then you told me to, forget that. So, so I'm not standing up here, I don't want to tell you, I, I don't want to be up here and say like, do what I tell you to do. Because when we say authority, we can often think of all the ways in which it is abused, can't we? But here's, here's what I'm telling you about the authority that God has given me, God has given the church, and God has given ambassadors with the gospel. Not do what I say, but let's, you and me, let's look to Him. All of us, let's look to Jesus. I'm not going to stand up here and say, you follow Jesus because you better. Instead, I'm going to say, Let, let's. Let's lay down our own rights. Let's lay down our own freedoms. Let's lay down our own sense of entitlement and let's, let's glorify Jesus. All of us, let's, let's all do this. Join me in this. Join me in, in all the ways that this is difficult for me. Let's lay down what we have and let's see that Jesus' way is better. The last thing it says is that they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now this is more nebulous. This might be a callback to Genesis 6 and the reference we had in verse 5 through 7. Uh, but we don't really know, essentially, that whatever was going on, the people here, they were relying on their own authority, namely in their dreams, a continuing revelation that apparently was contradictory to the teachings of the apostles. They were defiling their own flesh in some sort of practice, probably sexual, in a way that, that defiled themselves. And they were rejecting and throwing off all the authority of Christ and the authorities that Christ gave to them by their grace. But lastly, it says that they were blaspheming that's a word we don't use very often, but it just simply means to speak dishonorably or speak disrespectfully of something. And these people functionally were blaspheming against apparently the exalted ones that God had given them. Whether it was that they were blaspheming angels, maybe they didn't believe that there were angels. This is why um, the very next phrase is, is a reference to angels possibly. Maybe they were just blaspheming authorities. Maybe at this point they were, they were speaking badly against the apostles. Maybe the false teaching that they were beginning to undermine the, the life of the church with was something that was contradictory to the teaching of the apostles. And maybe they were just coming along and saying, man, forget, yeah, well, that was the apostles. They're dead. They're not around anymore. Let's try this. For whatever it is, they apparently threw off and rejected authority such that the ones that God had glorified, whether it be angels or leaders or teachers or apostles, they began to blaspheme. What does this mean for us? This means that we have a high culture of honor. It means when Romans tells us that we ought to outdo one another in showing honor, that we actually think it's a competition not to beat one another up or drag one another down. We actually think it's a competition to build one another up. Oh, you're going to compliment me? Oh, you're going to say nice things about me? All right, all right. I see what you're bringing. Just wait. Just, oh, I'm going to compliment. I'm going to compliment you so much. I'm going to 
going to compliment you to the floor right now. Right? This is our competitive nature. We take that drive and we honor and glorify God with it by glorifying the ones that God glorifies. And so this is why we get together every Sunday and we sing songs, and none of them are about you. They're all about Jesus. We actually sing songs to Jesus. Not once a year because it's his birthday, but every week and every time we get a chance because we want to glorify his glorious ones. We, we pray. We, we look to God and ask for him to protect us. We don't scoff at the thought that there's a spiritual reality. We don't scoff at the thought that there are angels working in some miraculous way. We, just, we, we venerate that and we go, man, this is a mystery to me, but God, protect me. And if it's by angels, then by angels, protect me. And if it's by the friends that you put in my life, protect me. And whatever the case may be, we honor and glorify those who God glorifies because we think that God sent them there to draw attention to him. Functionally, these people were teaching something that played out this way. So here we go. Now we go on this list of ways in which the Old Testament and then some Jewish apocrypha seems to be the appeal that Jude makes to his audience. So here we go. It, it gets creepy, right? This is where it gets weird. It says, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So there's a lot of stuff going on in here. Here we go. In the same way, if you'll remember, when, when Paul was speaking and preaching in Athens, he referred to some poetry that was well known by his audience. He said, Even your own poets say that, you know, this and that, and he, ref- he made a reference to their own culture so that they would understand what he was saying. So this is, as best we can guess, this, this reference of the angel, archangel Michael, apparently in a fight with the devil, the Satan, for the body of Moses, we isn't in the Bible. But there are some different apocryphal texts, either first or second Enoch, which is an old Jewish apocryphal text. We know that Jude was circulated most often around Italy, but also around northern Africa. And this is where we find the most historic copies of Jude. So what manuscripts we rely upon. Why is that important? Because these were highly Jewish contexts for this particular time. These were places where the Jews would have scattered by the Roman government. And so when these texts were unfolded, Jude, being a smart guy, a savvy guy, refers to their own culture. He he tries to contextualize his message and refers to a Jewish apocryphal text. So as we saw this last week, we'll die for the gospel. Uh, We will will maybe like suffer a paper cut for everything else, right? We'll die for this because it's primary. The other stuff will, I mean, okay, we'll disagree. But in the extent that it draws attention away from the gospel, we'll fight about it. But other than that, we're really not that excited about it. So here, what is he saying? He's, he's giving an example, apparently, and he's making multiple references. Evidently, this command can also be found in Ezekiel or Zechariah, the Lord rebuke you. And this picture of the mysterious death of Moses takes place at the, uh, at, at the end of Deuteronomy. We don't really know what's going on. Something strange and cryptic happens. Moses goes up, and then he's gone. And apparently there's only a couple people in the Bible that We don't know where they're buried because God took them immediately. We pay close attention to those things. And evidently, there's a a Jewish belief that Michael came and spoke. Now, why is that important? Why doesn't that bother me? Why is it even that it's not in the Bible? The reason that it's not a big deal is that he quotes this to quote something that is in the Bible. The Lord rebuke you. And so the first thing I want you to see is we're kind of walking through this text and things that I think are principles we can begin to build our own church and lives by is that authority belongs to the Lord first. 
There are other stories about people who had authority, assumed it, and then began to rebel against God with it. But he's at least saying that for whatever reason, if, 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 the Mike, if Michael the archangel fought for the body of Moses, he didn't fight on his own accord. He didn't think that it was his place. But even though he was a majestic and mighty warrior, he did what? He deferred to God's authority. He didn't assume authority on his own, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Not like I rebuke you. This is important for us. Authority ultimately belongs to the Lord. And whatever authority you and I have is only proportional to the authority that he's entrusted to us. Like, the, I, like I, God has entrusted me and blessed me with an authority over you to guide you by his word. But that's it. After that, and you should be grateful for this, right? If I only have the authority God gave me, that's good, because I don't know who to tell you to vote for right now either. I don't know who should be president at this point. It's getting out of control. Right? I, I, don't, I don't know some of the decisions you should make. What, what, should I, what should I invest in for my retirement? No clue. No clue. Here's what I get to say. With authority, I can say, store up treasures in the kingdom of heaven where moth doesn't destroy and eat and and thieves can't come and steal. There you go. I have the authority to tell you that. Outside of that, I don't know. And this is the kind of context we we want to begin to, to work out of as a church where we regularly just defer to Jesus. We have no problem going, I'm not sure. We should pray to God and ask Jesus what he thinks. This is the kind of environment we want to create. And I hope that when you, you, know, when you talk to me and you're like, hey, I'm having this problem, I'll go, well, on one hand, I think you should do this, but on the other hand, I don't know what I'm talking about. And so therefore, let's see what the Bible says. This is the kind of, I believe, the environment that God wants to create here. And it evidently wasn't the environment here that began to be revealed in this functional theology, theology of false teaching. Authority belongs to the Lord. Even Michael The archangel, I don't know about you, I don't know if you fight demons or whatever, but if Michael has to defer to the Lord, then let's just assume you and I do too. Verse 10, it says these people blaspheme all day that they do not understand. So they blaspheme, excuse me, all that they do not understand. Their blasphemy, their dishonorable speech comes from a lack of understanding. This is the second principle, I think, that this false teaching that was emerging in these first churches, Jude probably has to speak for us. That is, understanding is a must. St. Anselm is, is quoted with something that you'll hear us refer to often, and he, quoted, he kind of coined this phrase, faith-seeking understanding. Uh, the concept of blind faith uh, isn't biblical. Like, believe, hey, believe in this. Oh, yeah, I should just believe that. No, in fact, we're supposed to walk out our faith. We're supposed to live out our faith. Our faith is, is, is made visible in how we function and live. And so that means as a group of people, we seek understanding. We seek understanding in a unique way. We don't simply say, oh, I don't know, and I don't care to know. If there's a mystery, we're going to put every ounce of energy we can into looking to the Scripture to help us solve it, to help us understand it. And if we're not going to understand something, it's not going to be because we were lazy. It's going to be because evidently it's a mystery that God didn't care for us to have the answer to. Evidently, if you're, like, if you're like me, it's an answer that God knows I would probably use against him and others, and so he doesn't give it to me. He knows I would manipulate it and manipulate others with the answer, and so he doesn't give me those answers. And those are mysteries that he withholds from me for my good, for you good, for your good, and his glory. 
we seek understanding. Because evidently, if we don't understand, if we don't really begin to dig into understanding a, a biblical picture, a biblical framework for who Jesus is, then what's going to happen? We're going to dishonor one another, blaspheme against God, and blaspheme against Jesus. We seek understanding. This is difficult for us. You've heard me kind of make comments about this. This isn't an attack on education or teachers. I love teachers. You guys are killing it. Um, but students, we're struggling. Um, our, our current way of thinking through schooling and education is you skim as much as you can to get just enough information to pass the test. Right? I, I had friends that were like geniuses that I went to school with when it came to coming up with ways to cheat. You know these people? Well, they had systems of cheating. And I'm like, dude, if you put half the energy... That, you, that you've put into cheating for this test into just studying it, you'd be at the top of the class. But they devise these, cre- did you notice the teacher when they make the test, they always make a, no, I didn't notice that. I, w- I wasn't looking for that. And this is kind of the context, isn't it? Do you know this? Have you, have you seen this? And what happens is it makes us very bad at reading. It means that we're really good at reading little snippets, things like Twitter posts, Facebook posts, little articles. We can digest that just fine, but ask someone to read something for more than a few minutes and we don't know what to do with ourselves. That's a problem. That may be, that may be something you want to submit to Christ and gradually learn. Learn how to read. I know it's, it's, I know it's hard. I'm a very slow reader. And so it takes an, like, it's, an, it's arduous. It takes a great deal of discipline just to get through what most people get through in a little bit. It takes me a long time. And halfway through it, I, I, I space out. And I get to the bottom of the page and I don't remember what I read. If that's the case for us, and if that's evidence of a lack of understanding, be careful because blasphemy is coming next. If our faith isn't seeking understanding and we aren't graciously and kindly walking through this and we lack understanding, then what we'll refer to... and what, did, you, did you catch this? I don't want you to think I'm being out of control. I don't want you to think I'm being rude here. It, he makes a reference. He says these, they blaspheme all that they do not understand and... They are destroyed by all that they, this is his words, not mine, again, like unreasoning animals understand instinctively. All right, okay? Don't be an unreasoning animal. Right? You got thumbs, you got a brain, let's think this through. Let's look for creative and rational ways to live out our faith. Let's don't be unreasoning animals that refer to our instincts. When our instincts take over, then the fallenness of our nature becomes visible. And that's not us. We graciously submit that. So, okay, you're bad at reading. I got it. There's a lot of great podcasts out there. There's a lot of great ways you can be listening. There are books on tape. Um, so maybe you're like, I don't, you know, I, I'm, I, I, don't, I don't have a great vocabulary. That's great. There's, there's lots of simple, there's, a, there's, there's so many translations of the Bible that are, that are accessible to you. Some of them paraphrase, not necessarily translated, but it, it makes these principles accessible. Whatever it is, let's be creative. Let's be Let's be fluent in this. And when we see one another stumbling in this, let's humbly say, let's seek understanding so that we'll avoid being like animals driven by our instincts and blaspheme. Woe to them, verse 11 says, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. Rhyme there. And he references Cain, Balaam, and Korah. He references them out of order. But each one of these is a reference to someone who disobeyed God, who, who in in the case of Cain, apparently was envious toward his brother, so he killed Abel. In the case of Balaam, he was, tried to be faithful, but then he kind of sold himself to the highest bidder and 
spoke a false prophecy that got him killed. These people are rebellious. And it says that, and this is where we land and we begin to kind of land, head toward where we want to end today. It says, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts. Hidden reefs. That is like in the water, there's these reefs, these, these outcroppings of stone or, or, or something else that can destroy a boat and sink it. There are hidden obstacles at your love feasts. These people feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn. So here's what we see. Our functional theology can be revealed in false, reveals our false teaching. What we're teaching that's wrong is revealed in what we actually live out. So this is what this means for us. It says that it was also about these that Enoch, now he's making another Old Testament reference, prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have. So get this. There was judgment that they were under, not necessarily just because of what they said and taught to others, but by their deeds. What they did revealed their unbelief. Their practices were what revealed their heart. So you'll hear me say this a lot. Uh, we talk a lot about what, what, what God wants, and we believe that God wants what's in your hand. And what you bring in your hand matters to God. Whether it's in your efforts, your time, your dollars, your energy, God wants that. Those are things that he tangibly wants. But he also wants what's in your heart. And the two work together, and you can see what's in your hand typically as kind of a thermometer for what's in your heart. It tends to reveal what's actually going on. And these deeds evidently were revealing something ungodly. Did you catch all the ways in which he said the word ungodly, just in case you missed it? To execute ju judgment all, and to convict all of the ungodly of all of their deeds in ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And then he gives us a list of things that we typically wouldn't make a fuss about, but evidently reveal our functional theology. Are you ready? These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Because if our functional theology is what ultimately reveals what we're teaching, even if it's false, then another thing we have to realize in this last verse is that our functional theology is revealed in what you complain about. What you really value will be exposed by what you grumble about. These are grumblers. They're malcontents following their own sinful desires. They're loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now hang on for just a second. And let's kind of delineate some of these things. These tend to make sense. Grumblers, that's a person who would just mumble and complain. A, a, grumpy, kind of, a, a grumpy kind of disposition. Malcontents, that's someone who, no matter what, it's always not good enough. No matter what, it's always something, ah, I want something better. It says following their own sinful desires. It's an, a callback again for the people that defile their flesh. They'd rather do what's sinful rather than what's godly. And it says that they're loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So here's, here's what I would say. I think we can all picture this. But here's a warning. 
If you're sitting here in this room right now and you're thinking of all the people that you know that fit that description, you might have completely just missed the point. That might be your own, that might be your malcontentment. You might be the grumbler. So if you can think of like, oh, I, I know tons of grumblers, right? Well, well, you're grumbling. Stop, stop doing that, right? I know tons of people who are malcontent. Why aren't you content with the people around? I mean, so, you get like, so to be careful, don't let this be a witch hunt. Uh, this doesn't mean that in the church we're on a witch hunt, witch hunt for, for false teaching. That doesn't mean that we're constantly sitting out around like, is he the false teacher? Oh, they're the false teacher. Oh, they're definitely the false teacher, right? This isn't what we're looking, we're not looking around to out the false teacher. Instead, what we are doing is leaning heavily on the authority of Christ to reveal the sinfulness in us so that we begin to see the ways that our own sense of false doctrine play out in our lives. But it also means that the disposition that we have is extremely important. I know you think you're complaining because you think it's because you're having a bad day. But it might be because you have a false doctrine. that You have a view of hope and joy that Jesus doesn't offer you. It might be that ultimately you think you're God and every time something doesn't confirm that, you complain. I know you think you're discontent because your job's awful. I know you think you're discontent because of all of the awful things that have happened to you, but it might be that in fact you believe you are God and every time things don't go your way, you're angry. How do I know this? Because what you really believe can be exposed by what you really complain about. This is Jude's landing point for us. Are you more annoyed that God doesn't get His way or that you don't get your way? Are you more angry that God is not rightly glorified in the world? Or are you more angry that people just annoy you? Are you more angry that people don't submit their lives to do what God says? Or are you more angry when people don't do what you say? Because what you really believe will be exposed by what you really complain about. What do you complain about? What you grumble about? What you tend to be the most discontent about? will expose what you really believe about who God is. And friend, if you're, if you're distraught by this, if you're, if you're discontent because you think God is like a genie in the bottle and he's failing to be the gumball machine in the sky to give you everything you want, then I have good news for you. God is much bigger than that. He is much grander than that. And the gifts he gives last eternity long. He is much more glorious than that. You can trust this God. That if he withholds something from you, you can still be content. Now, does that make me a loudmouth boaster? <laughs> Maybe. But if we can think of all the ways in which someone else shows favoritism or someone else does this, rather than realizing the ways in which this plays out for us, then we may have missed Jude's point. And here's why it's important. That false teaching serves as a reef, a hazard. I want to end on verse 12 here. It says that these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. So in just a moment here, in just a minute, as is our custom, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the communion with 
Christ, the Eucharist, as some of you might call it. We're going to celebrate the body and the blood of Christ that was broken and poured out for us. And here's why that's important. If we're not careful, then the ways in which what we're believing about God might be inaccurate are actually hazards just waiting for us. Here's the way the Bible tells us this. This is our custom as we prepare for communion. I read to you 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says in the following instructions to this church, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. But there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So this phrase, love feast, this is the only time in the Bible we see it this way. Usually it's like this, Lord's Supper or the table. We think it's important because Acts 2.42 tells us that the New Testament church committed themselves to, to some principles, the apostles' teaching, the prayers, the breaking of bread, and the fellowship. We love that. We love to eat. And it seems like the very first people who celebrated communion, the Lord's Supper, they did so not just with singing and celebrating, but they did so with a meal. And this is what I've pitched to some of our gospel community leaders. I don't know if this is possible, but maybe sometime this year, we need to celebrate this like this, right? Uh, we need to celebrate in our gospel communities the Lord's Supper and eat food. And instead of going to dessert and feasting on dessert, we feast on what Christ has done for us. We work that out. I don't know. But for here's what this is what, this is what I know about us. Apparently, Paul to the Corinthians says the same thing that Jude tells to us. If we're not careful, then what we believe that is false about Jesus, that he's our only and sufficient sacrifice, can destroy us. It's a hidden reef. Why? Verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Did you get that sense of authority? Paul's like, I'm not, I'm not telling you to do this because I'm telling you to do it. I received it from Jesus, and I'm just giving it to you. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Therefore, let a person examine himself or herself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, the sacrifice of Christ, eats and drinks judgment on himself. When we do not exalt Jesus as the only authority, and trust Him as our saving grace, 
then we're not really drinking to the joy that comes from knowing his forgiveness. We're giving a toast to our own condemnation. So in a moment here, I'm going to pray, and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And this is what this means. This means that if there's, if there's something that needs to be laid down, if there's, there's a confession that needs to be made, if there's something that needs to come out, let that happen. Let it happen before you go and drink condemnation on yourself. That means that for some of us, the act of courage and maturity is to simply today not take the Lord's Supper. To not take it. And to courageously say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to declare the gospel in song, but I'm not going to take this. I'd rather, I'd rather skip today than to celebrate my own condemnation. Rather than to stumble upon a reef, a, a hidden snare under the water. Because these kinds of things, as they function in the life of our own homes and relationships in our church, might actually be hazards that destroy us. It might be hazards that wreak havoc on us. But here's what it is for the rest of us. Someone's going to declare the gospel to you in a minute. We're going to stand, we're going to sing, we're going to declare the good news and song. But there's gonna, some amazing that's going to happen. Some amazing. It's not just going to be a piece of bread that we're going to dip in the juice there by drinking of the cup, right? This, it's not just going to be bread dipped in juice and eaten. Something crazy is going to happen. When you see Christ as he is, it's a weird word, I know a love feast. A love feast. A feast that celebrates the love and sacrifice of God such that we declare by eating it that Jesus has died in my place. And while in the moments to come the enemy wants to remind you of your sin, someone back there wants to hand you a piece of bread and remind you of his sacrifice and declare to you that in Christ it is paid. This is his body. This is the proof of his love and forgiveness for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the gifts that you give us. Today, we thank you for the evidence of this uh, as we take the Lord's Supper together. Uh, we thank you for the tangible and visible manifestation of the gospel that we celebrate in just simply eating something and remembering and commemorating the body that was broken for us and the blood that was poured out for us. In these next couple of moments, when we begin to take this seriously, we begin to, if the judgment that Jude warns us of is, is judgment that, that seems to imply that, that there's conviction on us, would you, would you use that and, and convict us? Would you... Allow us to take that seriously. May we examine ourselves. May we truly look into ourselves and, and examine whether we are finding our hope and identity in ourselves and our own accomplishment or if we're finding our identity in the finished work of Jesus. Would you begin to remind us and restore us with the confidence that you have paid this price for us? If there are those in this room, maybe, uh, maybe taking part in this isn't the right thing to do. Maybe, maybe their identity is not in you, and, uh, and we ask that you would give us the courage to abstain, to stand back and say, uh, man, God, you're good, but, but my heart is not in adoration and awe of you, 
would we begin to confess that and let the forgiveness of Christ wash over us such that we really begin to celebrate the sacrifice that you've made for us. May we declare your death over our sins until you come back. In Jesus' name, amen.